0: Sometimes the world offers up a strange symmetry. When, nearly five years ago, Prime Minister Theresa May asked me to carry out a review of modern working practices, one of the people I met in number 10 was a policy advisor called Will Tanner. A few days ago, that five-year long engagement with government came to an end when ministers decided it was better to leave my part-time job as director of labour market enforcement empty than have me carry on doing it. And who am I interviewing today? about the nature of modern conservatism and his aims as the founder and leader of a new and highly regarded writer-centre think tank, none other than Will Tanner.
1: This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor.
0: Will, welcome to Bridges. Hi, Matthew. So let's start with Onward, start with the think tank that you've set up. You and I, I mean, you're a million years younger than me, but there's a certain sort of similarity between us. We kind of did some thinking, then went into politics, working in the middle of the machine, and then came out and started doing some more thinking. Tell us about Onward. Tell us about why you set it up and what it's trying to achieve.
1: So I agree. I think there is a similarity between us. And the purpose behind Onward, I suspect, was not too dissimilar from your reasons for joining the RSA many years ago. And that was that when I came out of government in the wake of the 2017 general election and I looked around me, I felt, and this was something that was shared with a number of other people, but I felt that there was a bit of a gap in British politics for kind of fresh thinking to actually respond to the challenges of today rather than just relive some of the ideological battles of yesterday. And that In particular, there was a lack of kind of practical and political thinking on the centre right. It felt like after ten well, actually seven years, seven or eight years in government at that point, the conservatives had slightly run out of ideas or, or were unsure about what the operating theory of conservatism should be today. And so we felt there was a, a case for a new institution to be set up to do some of that thinking, to offer some of those ideas, and to be a bit of a kind of focal point and locus for new energy on the centre-right in order to revive some of the philosophical traditions of conservatism, but also to generate ideas that can be played into government and to inform good policy.
0: Yeah, and the work you do is fascinating. I went back to your website before this conversation and the really interesting work. So I encourage people, even if people are on the left, go to the Onward website, there's some really interesting material to read there, particularly about levelling up, for example, which is something we'll come on to. But how useful is it, Will, for you to try to kind of situate yourself in that conservative tradition? I mean, if you think about what we've had from conservative governments over recent history and the medium term, we have the kind of one-nation conservatism, the kind of Butzker-like conservatism of the 50s and 60s. We then move into the kind of bracing, what the left would describe as neoliberalism of the Thatcher project. Then Major represents a bit of a move back towards a greater kind of emphasis on one nation. Then we get, you know, eventually we get the kind of Cameron project, which Maybe it's unfair, but you could kind of characterize as neoliberalism with a human face. And then with Theresa May, we get something very different. You know, we get a much more explicit communitarian feel, a much stronger emphasis on social justice. Now, I don't know really how to understand the Johnsonian project in terms of those traditions on the right. I mean, is the notion that you can situate this government or situate your project will usefully in terms of those traditions. Is that possible? I think it is possible.
1: I consider myself a conservative, but possibly of a different tradition to many people who also see themselves as conservatives. I think what's really interesting is that conservatism, as you've said, has changed much through history, but it is in a moment of really quite profound change at the moment, I think, in the wake of the 2016 referendum and the 2017 and 2019 elections, we have seen a a kind of really considerable shift in both the people who conservatism represents, but also the people who make up the Conservative Party in Parliament. So you've seen the Conservative Party become much more working class, much more regional in its geographic footprint, much more economically interventionist in some of its theory. And for me, that's actually quite a comfortable shift, actually. I think that's exactly where the Conservative Party should go to. And for me, that's actually going backwards in time in some respects to a Conservative Party that predated 1979 and and the shift towards individualism and is much more pluralist in its outlook. It's focusing on the norms and institutions in society. It's focusing on ensuring that we have broad-based growth that supports all people, ensures that everyone has opportunity no matter where they are born or grow up. And it's talking about a positive role for the state, not an unlimited role for the state, and certainly not talking about a kind of major expansion of government in perpetuity. But it is saying that the state has important roles and the state makes decisions which signal to markets and affect people's lives. And we should think about some of those decisions rather than just reduce the state to an irreducible core. And I think all of that is actually positive and it's much more in keeping with where the public are at the moment. And so it's it's shifting towards, I would say, not a populist centre of gravity, but something that's reflecting the whims of ordinary voters up and down the country. So it's not pandering to their prejudices, but it's reflecting their views.
0: So I don't think one should overestimate the virtues of coherence. You know, when you're in government, you don't spend your time looking at problems and asking yourself whether or not the answer you've got is one which is ideologically consistent with all other government policies or a philosophical position. And of course, one of the characteristics of our political system, because of the first part of the supposed system, is we have very broad churches in our major political parties. Nevertheless, what might on a good day look like pluralism, on a bad day, might look like incoherence, or might look like an attempt to hold together a kind of unwieldy alliance of very different perspectives. And so just to give you one example of this, I sense at the moment, and you and I worked a bit on this good on the good work agenda, which I think that Theresa May really believed in. We have, on the one hand, a kind of not much progress in relation to various things, which like employment bills and the kind of failure to fill my post. It's a tiny issue, but some people see it as symbolic. And we we see attempts to kind of suggest that there might be a deregulatory agenda. And it kind of feels on a bad day that the government wants to be able to say to one group of people, no, we really do care about good work. And that is part of our levelling up agenda. But on the other hand, it can't resist throwing some red meat to the more... You know, neoliberal wing of the party.
1: So I think you're right that there are competing instincts in any political party, but including in this government, there are people in the cabinet who are more in favour of a more liberal position on lots of these issues, especially around employment. And there are others who would tend to a slightly more protective or security-focused mandate. And actually, it's in the balance between those two positions that good policy can be made. I would argue, and that actually having a, a diversity of opinion, a plurality of opinion even, is helpful in government. And it's true in every political party. As I say, I don't think if you look at the direction of travel for the Conservative Party over the last five, 10 years, it is only really moving in one direction. And that direction is towards a more security rather than freedom-focused politics. And I think this is indicative of a very long-term shift in our politics over the last 20 or 30 years, away from the kind of emancipation that we saw in the 1960s and 1970s, towards something that is much more focused on giving people protection and giving them the tools so that they can belong in society, in the economy, and in their place. So I don't necessarily... I mean, I think you're right to point out some of the contradictions, but I don't think it necessarily points to a reversion to a kind of 1980s form of politics. I think it's actually moving forwards towards something that's more egalitarian, more protective, as I say.
0: So let's look at at a couple bits of the agenda through this lens. So levelling up, you've done a lot of work on levelling up, and it's a big, bold idea, which you can see the power of it. It feels like a progressive idea because it's around social justice. It takes Labour territory, in a sense, it speaks obviously to those constituencies which the Conservatives won for the first time in the North in the last election. But yet there's some real challenges. And if one was to say one of the characteristics of the Prime Minister that I think can prove challenging is that he often appears to think that to have an aspiration is halfway to delivering an outcome. Well, achieving levelling up in any meaningful sense would be doing something which we failed to do for 100 years, and which I think anybody would say will take at least a generation, even partially, to achieve. So what's your interpretation of of what's going on here with levelling up? How can this be successful, given how incredibly difficult it is to achieve?
1: So I think you're totally right. This is a generational challenge, and I don't think anyone in government seriously thinks that we can transform the prospects of left behind places or, or people who've lost out in recent decades in, in the space of a few years, that's simply not going to happen. But what we can do is start to shift the feeling of those people about the direction in which they're travelling. Are they going backwards or are they going forwards? And I think the government believes that it can genuinely start to demonstrate that there is a brighter future for left behind towns or parts of the country which economically and socially have been increasingly neglected and so i think it's as much about a feeling of kind of direction of travel rather than rather than necessarily delivering material improvements within a few years but i think there are ways in which we can deliver material improvements on a longer time scale too boris johnson in his first speech as prime minister which people often forget because it was kind of in the before times before the election brexit and covid but his first speech as prime minister he identified four key aspects of levelling up. The first of which was livability. It was just simply, do you have good schools? Do you have safe streets? Do you feel that your environment is a kind of healthy and productive one. The second was connectivity, which is not just kind of trains and, and roads, but also the diffusion of ideas, the things that at the RSA are your bread and butter. The third was was power and accountability. So giving people more control over their lives, not just taking back control to Westminster, but also taking back control to communities. And the fourth was culture, art and sport and cultural institutions, which make places great to live in and work in. And that to me is the essence of levelling up. And I think the really interesting thing about that is it's not just an economic mission. It's not just about putting more pounds in people's pockets, but it's about making their lives better and improving the Cultural milieu that sits around them, which clearly, if you go to Grimsby or Doncaster or Workington, has been lost in recent decades. And people there do feel that loss. So I think levelling up is as much an emotional project as it is an economic one. And I think that's why the government wants to put it front and centre, because it sees it as something that it can deliver on in an emotional sense, as well as potentially in the longer term, in social and economic terms.
0: But as a former insider, well, you know that Whitehall... I mean, remember Jeff Mulgan once said to me that there are some problems where there is simply one best solution, that everybody should be encouraged to take under the best way to replace a hip or whatever. And there are other problems where there is not one best solution. The solution depends upon context. And he said that Whitehall is a conspiracy, often, to make every problem that should be put into the second category look like it should be put into the first category. That is to say Whitehall is just a place which generates the assumption that doing it from the centre and the centre knows best. It just encourages that. So doesn't levelling up require a really profound shift in the kinds of assumptions that underpin power in Whitehall? Yes, completely. Completely.
1: And I think this is what will make or break leveling up essentially. So we know that to make successful places, just as to make successful nations, what's necessary is actually to create powerful and productive norms and institutions which exist in those places and to allow them to to act on their own to not be directed, but to develop in an organic way and to generate associations and innovation and diffusion of ideas and exchange of commerce and trade. And ultimately, the government is going to need to let go to a large degree in order to deliver levelling up. And they will need to capitalise as well as empower communities to take more control of their own destiny. I think we do need to avoid, as you say, and as Jeff Morgan said, the impression that there is simply one way to level up every community. Ultimately, communities are very different. And what we really need to do is to give those communities and uh, different regions as well, more power to decide their own destiny and to form some of their own institutions and networks that are going to be that kind of engine of of social and economic growth and so yes totally this will require a fundamental shift in the nature of power within the country but it will also i think require quite a big philosophical shift within government and within conservatism as well towards not just thinking about emancipating communities, giving more rights and kind of entitlements to people as David Cameron did during the big society years, but actually thinking about the kind of capital endowments that communities need in order to make use of those powers. So making sure that people have the resources as well as the tools.
0: Yeah, because in the end, you know, every politician, I don't know if it was Nye Bevan or Ernest Bevan who said that in their political career, every time they got promoted, they saw power scuttling around the corner ahead of them. It was never where they thought it lay. It was always somewhere out of reach. And given that that's the experience that cabinet ministers often have, to say to those cabinet ministers, one of the things you need to do is to give away power is a really difficult thing to do. I had a little vignette of this the other day I was talking to chief executive who's been kind of working with bits of government around some of this agenda. And they were talking to permanent secretary who said, yes, of course, you know, levelling up, you know, that's going to mean we're going to need to move some of our civil servants out of London. But it was absolutely clear what he didn't mean by that was he's going to move any of the decision making out of London, that he was going to move any of the strategic capacity out of London. He was just going to move some people out of London. And that's the kind of category error that one is going to have to push against. If it's going to actually feel different in Workington and Barrow or whatever, it's not going to feel different just because a few hundred civil servants who are being told what to do by London have set up an office on the outskirts of your town.
1: So I think that's right. I mean, personally, I'm very supportive of of shifting civil servants around the country. I think there is far too much concentration in one part of the country, but that doesn't mean that that is the entire answer. We need to do more than that. And as you say, the decisions need to follow too. You know as well as I do that The one place in Whitehall which feels like you have the least power is actually number 10, because actually you have no formal kind of structures underneath you. All you have is the power of bargaining and power of the Big black door, which does have some power, but it's entirely kind of imaginary. I think there is a need to kind of convince cabinet ministers of the need to devolve power and responsibility. But I think more than that, there's a really interesting intellectual shift where we need to get politicians away from thinking that it's their job just to spend taxpayers' money or to set up new bodies and institutions, that it's their job to actually create the foundations for other people to do things. So it becomes less about kind of top-down and and kind of planning and much more about laying some of the foundational layers on which other people can act. And that is a big kind of shift in thinking from Whitehall. It's actually how people like Andy Haldane think about industrial strategy. It's much less about top-down planning and much more about bottom-up foundations. And I think that is the kind of cognitive shift that's needed within Whitehall that will lead to much better policy. Because ultimately, there is a limit to how much government can do it on its own, whether that's in business investment, whether that's in repairing the social fabric of society. Ultimately, it requires a whole host of other actors to act in concert. And ultimately, it's government's job to kind of create the institutions and set the incentives and let everyone else act rather than to try and decide everything from Whitehall itself.
0: So you're getting there, Will, into into issues around kind of what is our model of change? What is it we think that the state can do? And that takes me to a Another aspect of this question of the nature of conservatism, because one of the strands of conservatism to which I've always felt a sympathy, actually, and actually as I've got older, I felt more sympathy, is the kind of Michael Oakeshottian kind of view, which is that conservatives are realistic about the degree to which you can make change happen. That really change is, is more organic, it's more idiosyncratic, that the role is to kind of broadly guide society. But the second you start kind of pulling huge levers to try to affect huge change, you're more likely to get things wrong than right, that kind of respect for tradition. And that brand of conservatism seems to me to have perished with Brexit. And, and I'm not saying that to attack Brexit. I mean, I suspect that you and I'm on the same side of that debate. But the thing about Brexit, it's a revolutionary act. And as a revolutionary act, it's having revolutionary consequences. It is quite likely, it's a different debate, but quite likely to lead to the breakup of Britain, for example. And so since the Conservatives have become revolutionaries and radicals, and and it was interesting that some of the people who were Brexiteers were also amongst those people who've been the kind of radical critics of lockdown in COVID, quite kind of outspoken in their position. So that that kind of milder, more gentle, more modest kind of bit of conservatism, notion of change, that that's just disappeared really, hasn't it? It's a
1: really fascinating point. So I think I think in some respects you are right that Brexit was a revolutionary act. It was certainly a, an act against the establishment, an anti-establishment kind of radical impulse that drove it. But there are lots of people who I have great sympathy with who would say that Brexit was actually an attempt to return to a Status quo that much better resembled the tradition of accumulated human knowledge that existed before we entered the European Union or the Euro- European Economic Area, and that actually it was an attempt to return to a Britain that existed before that was stronger for various reasons. Now, I have questions about that point of view, but I think it's wrong to say that it was purely revolutionary. There was an element of restoration as well to the Brexit vote and to many of the people who I think voted for it and and campaigned for it. But I do, I mean, your point about the essential strength of conservatism being that it does not seek to, to make the world anew according to some humanly devised plan, but takes the weight of human knowledge that we've accumulated over centuries and has the disposition to preserve rather than the disposition to disrupt. I think that is essentially, I mean, I think that's the reason why I'm a conservative. I think that's the reason why this country is instinctively conservative rather than radical is that, that we do value what we know and we seek to Continue a thread of experience rather than severely disrupt it. So, I, I think conservatism needs to hold on to that oakshottian impulse. It's essential to the tradition, and it would be a great shame if Brexit led to a great juncture in our political tradition. And it is one of the reasons why I'm very averse to the kind of the view that we should become a Singapore on Thames that we should purely embrace kind of hyper liberal policies because I think that's completely at odds with not only what people voted for in 2016, but also the conservative tradition writ large.
0: And I think it's fascinating, because in a sense, what it suggests is that one of the important battlegrounds or discussion spaces is around civil society, in the sense that, you know, I was interested in Mark Steers, who, of course, was an advisor to Ed Miliband on the left, his most recent book, Out of the Ordinary, which is fantastic. And that's that's very much really in that Shop tradition where he is emphasising the group of thinkers, people like Orwell, for example, J.B. Priestley, who rejected what they thought actually, even in the Attlee government, was a kind of rather top-down technocratic mindset and preferred to think about the reference points for progressive politics lying in the day-to-day habits, the day-to-day solidarities and coming together of civil society. Now, you and I both remember the kind of disaster of the big society. And, and, and it was a disaster, David Cameron's initiative. It was a disaster because the idea was great. And I wrote about it at the time in supportive ways and got criticised by some of my colleagues on the left for doing so. It was a disaster because the idea was great, but the way in which the Cameron government went about it was pretty cack-handed. This question of how we think about civil society and how we understand what civil society needs at the moment, when it feels quite fragmented and under enormous strain, particularly because of COVID. That's a critical issue. And I don't sense yet that the, the Johnson government has got, it hasn't got its own big society equivalent. It hasn't got its own civil society story, really, has it? I don't think
1: it does quite, yes. And I should say that I, I read Mark's book over the weekend and loved it and would recommend it to anyone listening. I think it's a, it's a brilliant defence of the parochial and the ordinary. And I actually think one of the most interesting things in that book was the fact that the thinkers that he refers to and the literature and and art and others that he talks about, it wasn't seeking to drive a policy agenda, it was seeking to drive a cultural agenda and to root the BBC and the institutions of society at the time in the politics of the ordinary rather than, as you say, big top-down planning and politics. And, And actually, what's interesting is I suspect that if we do have a revival of that tradition today, as Mark clearly thinks is possible... That will probably not come from the political class, from Boris Johnson or MPs like Danny Kruger and and others who who believe this stuff deeply. It will come from writers and and artists and photographers and and others like J.P. Priestley and Bill Brandt and George Orwell and others, because actually those are the people who connect us to the things going on around us and and to the important things in society. So uh, what I think is interesting is actually that this may not come from on high, it might come from below. And the pandemic itself is a really interesting example of that, where we have had a huge number of communities come together, neighbourhoods unite uh, in ways that they had never done before. And people remember and be reminded of the value of human connection, even at a time when we're not Physically connected, and so I think there is an opportunity for some of that bottom-up change, and for people to capture it in the way Orwell and Priestley and others did. But I, I just don't think we should wait for politicians to necessarily develop a policy agenda. It needs to
0: come from us rather than from them. It's a very important thing for us to be talking about, I think, because you know I run a, a charity. I'm is, is onward a charity. We're a not-for-profit. We're a company, but we're a not-for-profit company. Okay, but you know the charity sector is in a quite a kind of. Self-critical, self-examining kind of mindset at the moment. It suffered reputational damage. There's questions about how representative it is of the communities that it actually serves. There's quite a kind of soul searching going on, not just, I think, from the kind of, you know, from from the look, as you say, from political perspective, but within the third sector, the community sector, there's a lot of conversation taking place about what it is and what it should be and how it should be accountable. So it seems to me to be a really important space and, and possibly a space where people on the centre-right and centre-left can talk together about you know, a shared view. I think across most of that political spectrum, there's a sense that strengthening civil society has to be an important part of how we improve people's lives. Well, before you go, I can't resist asking a bit of punditry How do you think politics is going to start to play out? Let's assume, fingers crossed, that the vaccine is going to mean that in a couple of months we're really pulling out of this and that maybe by the kind of summer it really does feel that COVID is behind us. It's no longer the top issue. How do you think politics is going to then play out? We've got the new leadership of Keir Starmer. We've got obviously the big questions about Scotland as well. What's your sense of where the political terrain is going to develop? So I am pretty
1: optimistic about the rollout of the vaccine and the potential for a sharp rebound in economic growth towards the end of this year and into early next year. I, I think all of the signs are very positive on that. And I think the government is actually in a position that they would have kind of ripped your right arm off for last year if, if you told them that it was on the horizon, because I think bluntly Boris Johnson has he's maintained public support through this crisis, bluntly because people don't see it as something that was necessarily his fault. And they expect mistakes to be made, but they want the instincts to be the right ones. And I think some of the financial support that the government has given, the consistent approach of of trying to safeguard health rather than the economy, I think that has been broadly the right attitude. And I think that will be rewarded at the ballot box. And I also think that Boris Johnson and his team, even if it might not be his personal Political instinct, and certainly not what drove him as mayor. I think they do realize that the political shift that happened at the last election is a real one, and there has been a big realignment that makes it a very difficult for Labour to get a secure footing back into politics or into certainly into mainstream government, and makes it possible for the Conservatives to forge a completely new coalition that is broadly aligned around Brexit and lots of the the Leveling Up agenda. The one thing that I think could upset that apple cart. Is Scotland. And I think the union is the single biggest issue facing this country beyond COVID. And I think it's incredibly uncertain how it will play out. The SNP is currently doing quite a good job of tearing itself apart just at the moment that they're about to breach the barricades. The Conservative Party has deep divisions on the best way to respond to it. And I don't think the Labour Party has yet articulated its narrative, but actually part of the solution to the union issue is probably Labour recovering some of its footing in Scotland. So you have the union being a kind of receptacle for lots of the divisions and and conflicts that exist within within each of the main parties. So I think the, the union is the issue to keep an eye on. And I think Keir Starmer has much more time than most people give him credit for. I think he's kept quiet. He hasn't perhaps hasn't held the government to account as much as he could have during the COVID crisis, but it's been pretty difficult, to be perfectly honest. And I think lots of the positioning he's doing at the moment is broadly moving in the right direction. He's got good people advising him, Claire Ainslie is is excellent in my view. So I think he probably has more time, but he does need to at some point start to create some definition around himself as a leader, but especially around the Labour Party's policies, because it's not really clear what the party stands for at the moment. But I think he has more time to do that than most people say.
0: I agree with you on that. Well, I mean, I think, well, it took the Conservative Party, arguably the best part of a decade, to detoxify its brand after 1997. You know, I think Keir Starmer's done a pretty good job of detoxifying the Labour brand in kind of just over a year, and that had to be his absolute priority. If he didn't detoxify the brand, then no one was listening to anything he was saying, and he's gone a long way towards doing that, and that is, that is an achievement, and you have to do things in steps. There's no point... There's no point talking about a positive future for Britain if people think you're, you know, you're crazy. But finally, what's the next thing we can expect from Onward? What's the next big publication that you'll be putting out?
1: The thing that I think is most relevant for this conversation is we are doing a big piece of work on generational attitudes towards community, and one of the things that's really interesting that's come through in our work is that young people are. The most socially conscious generation, arguably, in the post war period. Their commitment to things like climate change is very evident, but they're also the least socially active. They're the people who are least likely to get involved in social groups, to volunteer, to commit to civic service. And that is declining over time. So you have a widening gap between older and younger generations when it comes to what we call the social fabric. And that's got significantly worse during the pandemic, where young people have become less committed to their communities, less connected to their neighbours. And we don't really understand why. So we're doing a big project to try and understand some of those generational patterns of social trust and to try and explore ways in which we can revive a tradition of kind of civic spirit and civic service among younger generations that perhaps was a bit more evident in the 1930s,
0: 1940s, 1950s. Well, that sounds absolutely fascinating. I look forward to reading more. Tanner, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Matthew. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA.
1: We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org approach to find out how.
0: And let's make change happen.